Welcome to Exhumed, an underground podcast examining arts and culture in the late 20th century. I'm James Wallace. On this episode, we are going to look at how British psychedelia evolved into progressive rock. In this episode, we are going to look at how British psychedelia evolved into progressive rock. Now, the first thing we have to talk about is the advancements in instruments. Two keyboard instruments would become available to musicians in the early 60s. The first was the Mellotron, an electromechanical instrument that opened up the possibility of sounds for keyboards, and it debuted in 1963. The sound of this instrument can be heard on the Beatles track, Strawberry Fields Forever. The other instrument was the Moog synthesizer, which debuted in 1964. The instrument allowed for endless possibilities for sound creation through the separate modules. The instrument became mainstream with the release of Switched On Back by composer Wendy Carlos, released in 1968. The instrument was adopted by bands like The Doors and The Grateful Dead. The Mellotron and the Moog allowed rock musicians to push the boundaries of rock music and create new worlds of sound. The Moody Blues formed in Birmingham, England in 1964 with members Ray Thomas, who was on harmonica and vocals, Mike Pinder, keyboard and vocals, Denny Lane, guitar and vocals, Graham Edge on drums, and Clint Warwick on bass. They started out as a Mersey Beat slash R&B band and had a hit single with the cover of the Bessie Banks song, Go Now. They released an album, The Magnificent Movies, and even opened up for the Beatles on a 1965 UK tour. Soon bassist Clint Warwick and guitarist Danny Lane left the group and would end up being replaced by guitarist Justin Hayward and bassist John Lodge. The band was in serious debt to their record company, Decca, and had yet to complete their second album. The record company wanted to create an album using what they dubbed Duramic Stereo which would give the recordings a rich, clean sound. Decca wanted to create a rock version of Czech composer's Antoine Dvorak's New World Symphony, and the Muty Blues were chosen for the task. But the band chose to do something else. They created a cycle of original songs with conductor-slash-arranger Peter Knight. This album is a conceptual journey for the listener and goes from psychedelic rock numbers and ballads with orchestra interludes played by the London Festival Orchestra, connecting everything with narration. The album will be known as Days of Future Past. The concept is about the various parts of the day. Dawn, morning, lunch break, afternoon, evening, and night. The album finishes with the epic and emotionally charged Nights in White Satin, which was a massive hit for the band. The album took a while to get the huge success that was expected, but it had become a steady seller in the U.S. and eventually got to number two five years after its release in 1972. What the band had shown was that classical composition could merge with rock music and the Mellotron is all over this album. After this release, the band would go on to release albums over the next five years that, while not using a full orchestra, included a wide range of instrumentation outside of a standard rock band. Another band that created a symphonic sound was Procol Harum. Formed in 1967 in Southend-on-Sea, out of the ashes of a band called the Paramounts. The early lineup included lyricist Keith Reed, singer Gary Brooker, 
Matthew Fisher on organs, Roy Royer on guitar, David Knights on bass, and Bill Eden on drums. They soon shot up the charts with their single, Whiter Shade of Pale. The Hammond-based organ-driven track was based on a back-style melody and would become an anthem for the Summer of Love in Great Britain. There was a lineup change that included a young Robin Trower, now on guitar. Their debut 1967 album continued with the organ-driven tracks and included the powerful Conquistador. This was the follow-up album, Shine On Brightly, saw the band continue on their experimental path as highlighted on the epic 16-minute track, In Held Was I, where rock, classical, psychedelia, and pop melody meld into a symphonic stew. While the band was never able to achieve the same success that they had with Whiter Shade of Pale, they were able to build a serious following, particularly in the United States. Their next album, A Salty Dog, would have the band using an orchestra in the title track. They would become more of a blues focused on albums like Home in 1970 and on 1971's Broken Barricades, which featured the complex and driven rock track Simple Sister. Robin Trower would depart the band and the group would go on to record a live album with the Edmund Sympathy Orchestra. The live version of Conquistador with the orchestra became a massive hit in 1972, five years after Whiter Shade of Pale. As progressive rock began to rise, the symphonic sounds of Harum fit in well with the genre. They would release several more albums in the 70s, including the orchestral Simply Magic in 1977. The band would break up and not reform until 1991. This band was so much more than a whiter shade of pale and a key band in the evolution of progressive rock. A serious psychedelic underground scene started to develop in London in late 1966 and early 1967 centered around places like the UFO Club. Bands would go on stage while light shows and surrealist films were projected among the shadows of go-go dancers. Two groups would become regular performers at the club, Soft Machine and Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd is, of course, one of the most pivotal rock bands of all time, and to examine their history would require at least two episodes of this show. But we can briefly look at the impact they had on the evolution of prog rock and would become arguably a practitioner of the genre. The band came together in late 1965 as a blues band and consisted of bassist Roger Waters, drummer Nick Mason, keyboardist Richard Wright, and guitarist vocalist Sid Barrett. Fusing the names of two American bluesmen, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, the band started to play extended blues jams in a similar manner as the Yardbirds that pushed the experimentation. Barrett was reading Grimm's fairy tales, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the I Ching, and began crafting lyrics and music that were surreal yet very English as well, following the cues from the Beatles, but taking the experimentation much further. After building a reputation in the underground for the psychedelic live shows, they signed with EMI in 1967 and released two singles, Arnold Lane and See Emily Play. Both songs combined surrealism with English quirkiness. They were followed by the debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. This album is filled with Barrett's experimental pop, as heard on tracks like The Gnome, Chapter 24, and Astronomy Donomy. 
The album also contained the instrumental track Interstellar Overdrive, which takes the listener on an intense psychedelic journey. But not all was well in the band. Sid Barrett was taking copious amounts of LSD on a regular basis, which was exacerbating the mental health issues he was struggling with, resulting in him becoming completely detached from reality. Dave Gilmore was brought in as a fifth member, and Barrett was eventually phased out and contributed only one song to the 1968 album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. Waters was taking over as the songwriter, and the title track was a long, extended experimental piece that was nearly 12 minutes long. The band would next record a soundtrack for the Barbette Schroeder film, More, where the band would experiment with a variety of genres, such as hard rock and acoustic ballads, along with a deeper dive into the avant-garde. This was followed up with Uma Guma, an album that contained live tracks and studio tracks where each member gets to indulge in their own musical vision. If you want to hear Complete Madness, check out several species of furry animals gathered together in a cave grooving with a Pict. The band would then go on to create an album that made use of orchestration, Adam Hart Mother. The title track is a 23-minute long suite, which includes brass sections, orchestral sections, and a choir providing vocals. While Gilmore and Waters disavow the album, the title track is a very interesting fusion of classical and rock that hinted at the direction that Prague would take. We will return to Pink Floyd's story later. Another band that was important to the emerging British psychedelic scene was Soft Machine. Soft Machine was formed in 1966 in Canterbury and consisted of members Robert Wyatt, drums and vocals, Kevin Ayers, who was on guitar, bass and vocals, David Allen on guitar. Ayers and Wyatt had been members of the band The Wildflowers, a band that would contain many members of the Canterbury scene. More on that scene later. The band loved long instrumental jams, so as they put it, it would not allow the audience to have a chance to boo them. They would end up becoming the house band at the UFO Club. They released the single Love Makes Sweet Music, a quirky psychedelic pop song that failed to chart. After a tour of Europe, David Allen, who was an Australian, was not allowed to enter the UK, so he stayed in France and would go on to form Gong. More about them later. The band then got a chance to open up for Jimi Hendrix on his 1968 North American tour. For a period of time, they had Andy Summers on guitar, but eventually Kevin Ayers insisted that they let Summers go. They released their debut album in 1968. They were now a tight three-piece without a guitarist. While they still had a quirky psychedelic numbers, the band were known for the tight interplay between the drummer, bassist, and organ. They were taking as much from jazz improvisations as they were from psychedelic rock. Ayers would leave to be replaced by Hugh Hooper. Over the next several albums, all named by number, the band would integrate more jazz into their sound and add additional players. By the time Wyatt left in 1972, the band had become an instrumental jazz fusion band. Wyatt and Ayers would both have rich solo careers. Jazz and rock and roll occupied very different spaces in the music industry, with jazz musicians looking down at the simplicity of rock. But in the UK, several bands began to incorporate jazz elements into their music. I will later go into more depth about the whole jazz fusion movement, but today we're going to look at psychedelic bands who became kind of jazzy. Traffic was formed by Steve Winwood, 
Dave Mason, Jim Capaldi, and Chris Wood. Starting out with a pop rock sound on their debut album, Dear Mr. Fantasy, which title track was a big hit for the band, the follow-up album, simply titled Traffic, saw the band incorporating more blues, jazz, and folk sounds into their music, much to the annoyance of Mason, who wanted to stay as a psychedelic pop band. The band broke up in 1969, and Steve Winwood went on to join the supergroup Blind Faith. After one album, Winwood hooked up again with Capaldi and Wood, and began releasing albums under the traffic name. John Barleycorn Must Die saw the band further integrating more folk and especially jazz and blues sounds into their sound. The band would keep releasing albums until 1974, until Winwood's Paraduritis and Capaldi's Drug Abuse broke the band up. Another band that was that integrated jazz into their music was Coliseum, formed in 1968. Their lineups included both a keyboardist and a sax player. Their two 1969 albums, Those Who Are About to Die Salute You and Valentine Sweet, brought lots of jazz rhythm into their blues rock sound. The band If had a similar sound to Coliseum with a larger brass section. One band that was particularly interesting was East of Eden. This hardworking band combined psychedelic rock with the experimental jazz of John Coltrane and the experimental classical sounds of Bartok. They had one hit, Jig a Jig, in 1970. All of these bands were pushing the boundaries of rock rhythms by incorporating jazz sounds. One band that often gets neglected in the story of prog rock is Family. Family's debut album, Music in a Doll's House is a British psychedelic classic that includes a lot of experimentation in terms of the genres used, and there's also a use of a variety of instruments. At the heart of family sounds are the intense raspy vocals of Roger Chapman, who brings a kind of theatrical intensity to the band. I am convinced that Peter Gabriel had taken notice of Chapman's vocal style. They would go on to release a series of albums that traverse numerous genres from folk rock to hard rock to progressive rock. Even though they often toured with the musical giants of the time, the band never really got the recognition they deserve. I cannot recommend the band family enough. Musical chops and virtuoso skills are at the foundation of what would be known as progressive rock. And one musician who loved to show off his musical wizardry was Keith Emerson. Keith Emerson took piano lessons as a child, and he grew up to become adept at playing classical pieces, but he also had a love for jazz music. He also started applying his musical abilities to the Hammond organ. After playing numerous different types of gigs, Emerson would get to put together The Nice in 1967. The central focus of The Nice's live show was Emerson's performance with the Hammond organ. Taking a page from Jimi Hendrix's theatrics, Emerson would flip his organ over, ride it across the stage, and stick knives into the key to create long, sustained sounds. The Nice would release three albums between 1968 and 1969, and would reference both Bach and Dave Brubrecht musically. The band did a cover of Leonard Bernstein's America during a live performance at the Royal Albert Hall and burned the American flag on stage. Emerson was banned from playing the venue for years. Emerson was a classical virtuoso who was also a rock star. Eventually, the nice would dissolve and he would go on to form a supergroup. 
more about them later. We have looked at how, during the 1960s, rock music developed out of the confines of its blues and country and western roots and began to incorporate different genres like classical, jazz, folk, along with incorporating a greater variety of instruments and experimenting with different studio recording techniques. But when does progressive rock really start? Critics agree that the genre is birthed with the release of In the Court of the Crimson King, in 1969. The roots of King Crimson started when brothers Peter, who's a bassist, and Michael Giles, who's a drummer, started playing with guitarist Robert Fripp in Dorset, England. The trio played under their last names and released an eclectic album in 1968, The Cheerful Insanity of Gills, Gills, and Fripp. The album combined pop, psychedelia, classical, jazz, and folk music together. The album contained comedy bits to link the tracks. Multi-instrumentalist Ian McDonald would join the band. Soon Peter Gills was replaced by Greg Lake, who would also provide vocals. Fripp had been playing jazz guitar ever since he was a teenager and was taking inspiration from everything from the Beatles to Jimi Hendrix to Dvorak and Bartok. McDonald brought in his writing partner, Peter Sinfield, the new band would become known as King Crimson. Fripp was on guitar, Giles on drums, McDonald on numerous instruments including flute, saxophone, and mellotron, and Sinfield handling the lyrics. The band would get their breakthrough when they opened up for the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park in London. The audience was totally blown away by the complex level of musicianship played by a rock group. The sound mixed classical music, avant-garde experimentalism, jazz, and rock. The band would go into the studio, and their debut masterpiece was released in October 1969, in the court of the Crimson King. The album opens up with the intense proto-metal of 21st century schizoid men. The song features distorted vocals, dark lyrics, and guitar playing that ends up sounding like Jimi Hendrix playing Bartok compositions with the speed of a Charlie Parker solo. Rock music had never seen such ferocious time changes before. Fripp's guitar playing is accentuated by McDonald's sax. This is followed by the subdued I Talk to the Wind, where McDonald plays flute, saxophone, organ, and pianos. The next track is the dark melancholic Epitaph, where the Mellotron takes center stage. Moonchild also starts out as a Mellotron ballad, but eventually evolves into a quiet, experimental improv piece. Finishing off the album is the absolute epic 10-minute symphonic title track in the Court of the Crimson King that takes the listener on a dark, fantastical journey. This album was unlike anything anyone had heard before and demonstrated how much the barriers of rock music could be pushed. Lake would soon leave and hook up with Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer after contributing vocals to the follow-up album In the Wake of Possession in 1970. Fripp would continue to lead the band over the next few years with various lineup changes. The more jazzy-sounding Lizard was released in 1970 and Islands in 1971. After a U.S. tour in 1972, captured on the amazing live album Earthbound, Fripp would put together a new band in 1973 that would push the boundaries further. More on that in another episode. We have seen in this episode how the experimentation of British psychedelic bands 
would eventually evolve into progressive rock. In the next episode, we are going to look at the prime years of progressive rock in the early 70s and the big names of the genre. Thank you for listening. I'm James Wallace.